Hello, listeners. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably interested in social enterprises in Africa. Just before we dive into today's show, I wanted to let you know about a really amazing opportunity. Engineers Without Borders Canada is right now looking for a new CEO. This is a Canadian charity supported by thousands of volunteers that's investing in some of the most amazing social enterprises in Africa. Their alumni include people like Mike Quinn of Zona and Boost, who's been on this podcast before, and the founders of Viamo, a mobile messaging for good platform. Okay, I admit, I was part of EWB when I was in school, and it really helped to shape my thinking and my passion for the sector. So if you know of any inspiring leaders who can work in Canada, check out the opportunity on the Engineers Without Borders Canada LinkedIn page. And if you can't work in Canada, check out Reliance Health. We're chatting to their founder now, and they are hiring like mad in Nigeria, Egypt, and remotely. And so basically, I'm at Demo Day pitching this thing that's like, we basically had only worked on for like a week. I cannot believe that. That's insane. It was still like a concept. And we had to find a way to like make it land with investors and stuff. And it did. No, it did not. Okay. <laughs> You're kidding. Absolutely, really? Absolutely I mean, you only had a week, so yeah. <laughs> it absolutely really? did not. I kid, I, I, mean, I kid you not. It absolutely did not land. Not at all. You're listening to Aid Evolved. And I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're talking to founders, people who have built the social enterprises that are improving lives in Africa. Today, we're speaking with Femi Kuti. Femi is the CEO and co-founder of Reliance Health, an HMO that is using technology to make quality healthcare delightful, affordable, and accessible in emerging markets. Just earlier this year, they raised $40 million as part of their Series B round of financing. This is the largest of its kind in African health tech to date. But what really surprised me when I sat down to chat with Femi is that he's a really down-to-earth, humble guy. I loved hearing his story about how he completely failed his investor pitch at the Y Combinator demo day. And also how that hasn't stopped him from pursuing a really ambitious dream and winning where so many other health tech founders have failed. Today's conversation is also one of a few examples where we're seeing health tech founders pivoting out of a pure digital play because the needs of the ecosystem are so great that they need to get their boots on the ground to provide both physical and not just digital services. Towards the end of the show, he spills some words of wisdom for other founders. For example, he asks the question, who really sets the vision for a company? The funder or the founder? But I'll let Femi tell you all about that. Without further ado, here he is. I was uh, born in Nigeria and raised most of my life. I was raised in Nigeria in a in a mid-sized town called Ondo that's about three hours outside Lagos. Grew up in, you know, a pretty large compound. My father is a, is a doctor as well. So hence in the family, hence why I was sort of like, yeah, brainwashed into going into the healthcare path to, to some extent. My my mom is a, she was because she's retired now a, a teacher, but she worked, I think, for about 10 years as as a principal. So she used to teach physics at a certain point. So just kind of grew up between Nigeria most of my life. Some of that time was spent in the UK in my younger years, around the time when my father was doing like a postgraduate degree. A little bit international in terms of like the growing up experience, 
but most of it in in Nigeria in like a in like a small town as far away from the from the noise and hustle and bustle of Lagos as as my parents could take us. <laughs> and yet somehow despite their best efforts you found yourself getting drawn into that ecosystem. Yeah, I tried to I tried to stay away from Lagos as, as long as I could, but you know, at some point it was it just wasn't feasible. At some point I was living <laughs> in a city called Ibadan, which is about an hour and a half away from Lagos, and I used to commute into Lagos like once a once a week or a few times or a few times a week. But at some point it was like, you know, bite the bullet, find somewhere <laughs> that you could <laughs> you could possibly exist in in Lagos and then move down. For sure. And for the benefit of our audience, Lagos is perhaps obviously the Silicon Center of Africa. There's more startups that I can count just teeming out of Lagos today. So Femi is in good company. They're, they're basically on every single street at this point. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> what an environment. Wow. Now, Femi, I know you have a really interesting background. You studied as a doctor, you got licensed, and then you went into investment banking, working at Goldman Sachs. Um, And so I know, and continuing in, in the healthcare space, even as you're working in Goldman Sachs, there's a key moment in your story where you decided to walk away from that pretty lucrative career and do something a little bit riskier, a little bit unknown. Can you talk a bit about what was going on in your life and why... You know, your, your parents must have been so angry at you. Why did you walk away from Goldman Sachs? It, it's funny you say that. Actually, my father was delighted. He was so what? happy that, <laughs> no, I kid you not. So I remember very clearly, I'll, I'll talk about like what was, what, what made me make that decision. But, but I remember very clearly when I, I texted, I'm not sure if I like texted him or I called him and I said, Hey, you know, I just, I just resigned from Goldman's. I'm coming back to Nigeria for a while. What I thought was going to be like a few months. And he was like, yes, finally, you, you, you've done the right thing. <laughs> you can go back to being a doctor now. And I was like, well, I, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure if that's part of the plan, but you know, I'm glad that you're, you're happy that I've, I've left this, you know, very lucrative career to just like, you know, do something that I'm not sure if it's going to work. But, I but was think, that your plan? Were you were you going to quit there to move back so, to Nigeria? So, so this is so this is really what happened. So I joined. Yeah, we want the real story, baby. Yeah, this is the this is the inside <laughs> the inside gist. So I joined Goldman's just out of medical school. At, at some point in medical school, I was it was pretty clear that I was more interested in sort of like the business side of healthcare than I was in actually practicing as as a doctor. You know. I was a pretty decent doctor, so it wasn't that I was bad at the job. <laughs> we need to make that clear. But I think I was just more interested in, you know, the the broader, more population-based sort of initiatives and, and how to make healthcare, like, cheaper, more sustainable. And around that time, I'd gotten the opportunity to work at Goldman's. It was, like, a fantastic opportunity. It was great that it was also still in, in the healthcare space. I like to say that I was sort of, like, seduced by the dark side of investment banking, um, that's the joke that I like to give, but but in all honesty, it was like a great opportunity for me, and I was very interested in business. And I learned so much about like business, about how to structure companies, that kind of stuff. But I think at some point, for me, after doing that for about two years plus, it was like I think I've kind of like gotten what I want to get out of this. I think I want to try try to do something else, which has kind of been like the story or the arc of my life where. I do get, this is probably, I like to tell you, this is probably the longest job that I've had. I usually go to a <laughs> point where, <laughs> where it's like, hey, I just want to learn this particular thing about this job. And when I'm not really feeling it anymore, I try to find something that does sort of like excite me and ignites that passion. 
Yeah, like in the millennial generation, it's normal to be at a job for two, three, four years and then walk exactly. away. Exactly. Exactly. Hundred percent. Yeah. And then you know, I left. I think my plan at that point was to go to either business school or to do an MPH, Masters in Public Health. So I, I had been offered like an admission to do Masters in Public Health at the London School of um, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I think I was, I also had an offer from the Harvard School of Public Health or something like that. Wow. So my plan initially was actually to leave the UK, return to Nigeria for like a few months, and then either come back to the UK or to the US to to start the 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 master's program and then move into management consulting. That was actually my initial plan. Wow. I was only yeah, I was only supposed to be in Nigeria for like a few months, but you know, somehow just I chose not to leave. So something happened. Yeah, so got to Nigeria and I had a bunch of friends who were in the startup scene, you know, like you know, there was a company that was doing really well back then called Jobberman. So which was started by three, this was like the biggest job board in Africa at the time. I think it probably still is. It was started by three of my friends, Okwe, Lekon and Deji, right? We were friends in university. I was actually supposed to join the founding team, but um, could hear my father's voice at the back of my head saying, you, you can't fail in your final year of med school. <laughs> you have to focus. So I decided to do the mature thing. Um, and they were doing really well. That was around the time Iroko had started. Iroko TV had started, was doing really well. Jumia, uh, Conga. These, so this was kind of the time when, you know, startups were really bubbling in the ferment. And it was very interesting. I was like, wait, but no one is really doing anything in the healthcare space, you know. And, you know, I just got the idea like, hey, let, let's see if we can do something in this startup space for healthcare. And that's where I just decided to... I think then my plan was I'll give it a shot for, for two years. If it doesn't work, I'll go do an MBA this time and not like a master's in public health. Yeah, it's clearly I'm a, I'm a very disorganized person in terms of, <laughs> in terms of life planning. Um, oh, but then I was like, you know, I'll do this for two years. If it takes off, fantastic. This is going to be super interesting. If it doesn't take off, it's great. I can just kind of dust off my 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 degree and like find something in school and 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 i think that sort of like aligns with an interesting point that i like to share to people which is sometimes these non-standard paths are actually less risky than we think they are right like and usually i like to was like if you are pretty well educated you have some work experience even if that thing that you want to try out doesn't work you're not going to be hungry or living on the street or broke, right? It's going to be tough, yes, but you will probably be able to find like a decent job. And I think now what's extra interesting is the fact that many employers are valuing these non-standard experiences because like, it's just, it's like the richest MBA, right? Like it's- I was going to say, I, I you, imagine- yeah. Now you have a better training in MBA and MPH one, than you ever would have had you taken those programs. 1,000%. You learn so much. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of like a very steep learning curve. And, and I would say it's probably the, the, the toughest way to learn these skills, but you learn it to such a level of mastery that, you know, it's, it's very valuable to employers. And I actually, look, if, if it's something that interests you, give it a shot. You know, it, it's not as, the, the negative outcome isn't as bad as you might think it is. 
I really love that message, particularly because I think a lot of the critique that people have of more traditional schooling systems is that they don't teach people to be entrepreneurial, to be innovative, to you exactly. know change directions quickly. And so if you're not going to get that from school, you got to get that from somewhere, be it exactly. a, a successful or a failed startup. Yeah. Good to hear yeah. that, Femi. So then moving forward in, in the arc of your journey, um, you then went on to create a digital health startup. And it was quite interesting because that, that first digital health startup um, you created is not unlike other organizations that we've heard about here on this podcast. Yep. You know, yep. something about uh, hearing from doctors at a distance and exchanging messages with them. But then the next big pivot I, I want to point to is your decision to expand beyond digital health. So there's a major turning point where you stop being just this messaging application for doctors to being a much more comprehensive solution for healthcare. Can you talk about that particular phase, that particular transformation in your business? Yeah. So so when when I sort of decided that I wanted to start something in the healthcare space, the, the easiest thing, it wasn't just the easiest, it was kind of like what was the the hype or what was like the most oh, yeah. interesting thing for most people at the time was telemedicine. I'm still riding you know? that hype. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but the, but this was this was like 2016, right? So there weren't that many there weren't that many really good telemedicine services, at least in Nigeria at that point in time. So it was quite early in the telemedicine space. Um, so I think we, the company was called Kanpe at the time. I think Kanpe was probably one of the few telemedicine services that had gained significant traction. The vision has, the mission, sorry, had always stayed the same, which is like, you know, how do we use technology to make quality healthcare delightful, affordable, accessible? It's always been, in, it's always been, you know, the vision of everything that I've done, everything my co-founders and I have done. The first iteration of that was Kanpe. But I think, what we found was even though we'd scaled this business to like, you know, a pretty decent amount, we were in about five countries across Africa. We had a great partnership with Facebook on its free basics platform. We nice. had about 150,000 plus customers across all these five countries. you getting a lot of press. It was great to, you know, a lot of interest from, you know, startup competitions. I was pitching all the time. <laughs> these startup competitions. But at some point we had to kind of ask ourselves that, you know, were we really fulfilling the mission that we had set out to do so? And one reason why that was challenging was because the only thing that Kankwe could really do was allow people to talk to doctors. Like, so it then raised the question, it's like, okay, after I've spoken to this doctor and the doctor needs me to do a lab test, what happens next? You know, I've spoken to this doctor and he wants me to, to get some medications. What happens next? You know, and those mm -hmm. were sort of like some parts of the equation that we hadn't really we hadn't really answered. But interestingly enough, around that time, we had we 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 were fortunate enough to to get into Y Combinator, this the accelerator based out of Silicon Valley, and I and I remember us and I remember us having this conversation with with our group partner. So basically, at at, at YC Y Combinator, you know, you have a one or two group partners who you have office hours with, with once a week. And then you have group of, group office hours with all the other startups in your group and this um, the group partner. But what was interesting is YC is, I think it's about a two-month program. Uh, and then the last two weeks is, the, sorry, the last week of the program is demo day. And so if you think about this, it, like an eight-week program, the eighth week is demo day. You have seven weeks of actually working on your startup 
actually in, mm-hmm. in reality, it's about five weeks of working on the startup, two weeks of preparing for demo day, and then demo day week. By week six, which was when it was like two weeks of, where the two weeks of preparing for demo day starts, we're in this conversation with, with our YC partner. And, and he's asking these like really philosophical, fundamental questions of like, look, guys, is this really, this is like two weeks to demo day. Like we're supposed to be on a stage pitching our business to Yikes. tons of Silicon Valley investors. And he's asking that, you know, guys, is this really fulfilling the vision, the mission that you guys had set out to do? And, and I had to give an honest answer. Like, well, you know, we have all these other bits and pieces that isn't really so, okay, so what does the business look like if it's fulfilling all of that? So, well, we'd probably be a bit more like, you know, Kaiser Permanente, like an integrated healthcare system where we, people could sort of pay us a fixed fee and we'd sort of provide them with all of these things. But, you know, like for us to kind of do that, it'd be really expensive. We'd need to get a license, all this kind of, it's like, yeah, just pitch that. And I'm looking at this guy's like, what? are you, are you insane? Like, oh, oh my God, just, I'm like, getting heart pitch an entire idea. Exactly. <laughs> Two weeks to demo day. But it's like, and that's the great thing about YC Park is like, they give you advice that's like shocks you, but a good chunk of the time, they're not perfect, but a good chunk of the time, like, you know, it's right. And they can sort of like <laughs> be on you to try to do the right thing. And so we're like, okay, you, look, let's just refine our pitch and just go pitch this thing. And so basically I'm at demo day pitching this thing that's like we basically had only worked on for like a week. I cannot believe that. That's insane. It was still like a concept. And we had to find a way to like make it land with investors and stuff. And it did. No, it did not. You're kidding. kidding. Really? I mean, you only had a week, so yeah. It absolutely did not. I kid, Irina, I kid you not. It absolutely did not land. Not at all. Wow. I had this idea that Y Combinator was like a, like a stepping stone where you did really well there and then you get next thing and the next thing. It is. To be fair, it is, it is a stepping stone. I mean, it was a stepping stone for us and it continues to be. But the thing is like, you just, yeah, like most things in life, it's never really a direct path. It's always like a squiggly line that just moves all over the place and then just manages to get you to the destination that you need to get to. Let me just quickly explain how Y Combinator's demo day used to work. So it used to be on demo day, all the startups would come into a room and they would pitch their idea to a room full of investors. Yeah, stressful, right? All the investors in the room have a mobile app on their phone. And depending on how much they like your idea, they'll click like on the application. After the pitch, you set up a few meetings and then hopefully the investment starts to roll in. But obviously it's a lot easier to click like than to write a check. So you want to have a lot of likes. You want at least a hundred or better yet a thousand likes from the investors in order to get some indication that yeah, you're actually going to get funded. It's not an exact science, but roughly speaking, the number of likes usually translates into the amount of investment that you're going to get. And if you're anywhere under 100, you're dead in the water. So we go on. Well, I mean, to be fair, it's me. I'm the one who kind of messed this up. Um, I go on on the demo disc stage and I pitch and I come off the stage harrowing two minutes and we're refreshing the app. Okay, how many likes do we have? I kid you not, Ruina, we had like 10 likes. Oh, no. 10 oh, likes. Man. Yeah. It's like, yeah. That's and devastating. It's like, very devastating. Oh, my God. I'm so, like, it was so demotivating. 
It was wow. like 10 likes. And I'm like, oh, guys, we, that we must are have been so, the worst day. <laughs> yeah, we are so screwed. And it's like, guys, we're so screwed. We shouldn't have made this. We shouldn't have done this pivot. We shouldn't have pitched this thing. We should have pitched like the... We should have pitched the telemedicine thing and just continued across across that end. Which is interesting because the truth is, as founders, we knew that what we were pitching was the right thing to pitch and not the telemedicine thing. But uh-huh. sometimes, which is interesting, like sometimes you kind of need to remind yourself as a founder that like, look, investors are facilitators. Investors aren't supposed to sort of define the path of your company. You, the founder should be the one to define the path of the company because the founder knows the problem, the founder knows the customers, the founder knows the problem set. Investors right. are facilitators. But I understand that, like, you know, if somebody, he who pays the piper sometimes dictates the tune, it can be difficult to, like, to kind of grok that mindset, especially when oh, you really need the funding. Right. And clearly, you've become a better, better at talking to investors since I, I don't think we got anything wrong to be honest I think it was just like I think at the time it was one of those business models that you kind of need to show that it works for people to get on board because I think a lot of people were comparing and and keep in mind this was like investors based out of Silicon Valley but not many of them had much experience with like Nigeria or Africa or many emerging markets. Yeah, so, and I would say that bar is even higher for an African startup. You know, exa- investors say we need more certainty in the African market whereas the exactly. fact of the matter is you're going to get less. And so you're kind of stuck in this catch 22 of you know, it's it's a risk like no we haven't done it before. That's why it's exciting, right? Exactly, 100%. And then usually in those kind of scenarios, you want to anchor it against something that you typically understand. That's just a normal, that's a natural way of processing information, right? So this is something that's new. I don't understand it really well. But what's it similar to that I actually understand and know really well? And in our case, it was, you know, traditional US health insurance companies. And then now, immediately the US once investors thinking, can understand that. For they sure. can understand that for really sure. well. And then immediately they start thinking about that. Oh my God, it's regulation. There's regulatory risk. It's going to take so much time to get a license and all those kind of things. So, and then it's difficult to sort of explain. I mean, I definitely could have done a better job of sort of positioning it, but it's difficult to in like two or three minutes to sort of explain what those differences are and say, Hey, look, I get where you're coming from. But the market and the environment is so different in these other markets that we're trying to play in that, you know, it's it's not really a direct comparison. Yeah. And it was your first pitch. What's interesting about this story is even the feedback that you get from the doubts, the questions that they raise, it forces you to do your homework so you can answer them better next time. One thousand percent. So the thing is that every single pitch that I had, I could sort of anticipate where the where the sort of like roadblocks in terms of being able to figure out what the, the roadblocks that they need to get over, the humps that they need to get over to get to a yes. And so I would anticipate those questions and sort of like use that to sort of refine the pitch from the gate, you know, from the gate. That makes but sense. The, the, but the other thing that's interesting about Demo Day for us was, so usually the way Demo Day works is that there are these breaks between all the pitches. So you have like a block of say like 10 pitches and then just like a little break and then a bunch of pitches. But during those breaks you can sort of network and hobnob with investors, right? And so, you know, Okwe Matthew and I, this my co-founders and I, we finished, I'd finished the pitch, completely messed it uh-huh. up. Um, we were looking at oh, like man. eight likes, but we're like, hey guys, look, we cannot go back to Lagos 
without getting the checks we need. Like, yeah, yes. this is messed up. I love this that. This is messed up. I love up. that yeah. attitude. Because huh. you have Good to, like, you. there's no choice, right? Like, this is messed up, guys, but we need to get those checks. And so basically we just like split up. I, I mean, I think a lot of people would have given up. You know, a lot of people would have been discouraged. Like, I, I guess we don't have it in us. I guess we don't, we, we can't do it. And But you were like, which no, is, we're going. Which is understandable. We're going from it's, here. it's very discouraging. And then so we just basically yeah. like split up, went into the, into the break, break room and just started talking to like different people and just like talking to them, talking to them, talking to them. The crazy thing is, Okba just bumps into this random guy who's having a drink, <laughs> you know, gisting, they're chilling, they're chatting, Okba's pitching. Guess who this guy is? He's the senior partner for Tencent. For those of you that don't work in the tech industry, Tencent is the largest tech name you've never heard of. At one point, it was worth almost a trillion dollars. And it's still one of the largest tech companies in the world. It's most famous for providing WeChat, the messaging platform that is used by literally everybody in China. But it also has investments in over 600 other technology companies all around the world. So when you bump into an investor from Tencent, pay attention. I kid you not. Just like that. I kid you not. Wow. And it just so happens that like, oh, oh, Femi, like, so, so I'm... I'm sort of like pitching to this other guy and then Okwe rolls up with, with this guy and it's like, hey, family, I have someone for you. I think you can finish the pitch and give him more details. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, oh, he, he's with Tencent. I'm like, okay, now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> and interesting enough, like Tencent was one of the largest investors in our, in our seed round. But I think what wow. was, and another interesting thing was that we were actually the first African startup in our batch to get a check. Represents. You got to do it for Africa. Don't do it for yourself. Yeah. So like we were the first set to get a check because like, for, which was interesting because every other startup had way more likes than we did. It was like, I think there was like 100 likes, huh. 200 likes, that kind of stuff. But it was basically huh. that old concept of like, hey, we just need to get into, get into the weeds and just start talking to people and not allow this to discourage us or allow this to like make us feel, feel bad. And, and I think that that was super helpful. Obviously, after that, it became easier. We were able to first raise the first like, kind of like seed rounds to get going. We proved the thesis. We started getting good revenue. The business was clearly something that made sense. And from there on, it was easier to sort of convince investors to back us on our mission. For sure. My main takeaway from this is not to worry too much about all those social media likes. You know, a click of a button is one thing, and then there's writing a check. And that's completely different. Than 100%, dynamic, yeah. And, and also learn how to pitch really well in two minutes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. So, Femi, that was, that was a pretty big shift uh, for you and for your organization. Like the other pieces I can imagine, you know, you're, you're a doctor by trading, you, you're building a chatbot, providing the services at a distance, and then you're stepping up. You know, you're going to become an HMO, which means all these different physical and virtual services and a whole network of a whole network of interventions that you're now weaving together. Can you talk a bit about some of the things you needed to to figure out or some of the things that you had to you had to learn as you made that major shift in who you were as a company? There's one thing, I think the biggest thing that at least I learned because it it might be different from my other co-founders was the fact that you can't really achieve anything sizable without a great team. So very quickly, we kind of knew that like, hey, my experience is in clinical healthcare and investment banking, and that's it. 
Opens experience <laughs> is in he studied geology and then worked in you know private equity so we had no experience in actually you know like healthcare financing or anything like that so the first thing that we did was we when we went to Nigeria we were like okay who are those people who are really clued in in this space and we just like spoke to them and then we hired them and they came on board nice. but i think and i think nice. it's also another lesson that i'm learning now which is like you're really only as good as the weakest link in your team and so so even if it's like if it's a group of six people and there are five rock stars and there's one sort of like mediocre person on the team the entire team is mediocre like there's just nothing you can do about it like so so i think for me that was sort of like the biggest lesson just like making sure we found people who knew who were really good at the various parts that we needed them to be good at and just like convincing them to just come on board with us that makes a lot of sense at some point particularly when you have the capital to get going it's about building the team knowing what your own competencies are and then getting those additional competencies in that your your core founding team might not have and the interesting thing is that like even if you actually don't have the capital one thing i'm actually finding out is that there are a bunch of there are a group of people who for equity right are willing to sort of take a punt of course they're not going to work for nothing you know so so you so, sometimes need to be mindful in you know, how you're allocating, you know, that that funding. But but I think sometimes we think that you need to have raised humongous amounts of money to be able to get that person who would add value to the team. The one thing that I say to that is growing a startup is really in locksteps. So sometimes you, you don't need that, you know, chief product officer with 20 years of experience who's done it at like Meta and, you know, Spotify and, you know, Apple or, you know, whatever. Sometimes you can get like the, the you know, senior product person who's done it at a few other companies at first and you can probably afford that person and, you know, support that person with equity and just think about it in that lockstep. Because sometimes as an early founder, it's easy to get stuck in that mindset that like, oh, I need to raise a ton of money to get the right team. You actually don't. Like if it's a, it's a really good idea, there are a bunch of people who are willing to kind of take a punt. And I think it was a lot more difficult back in 2016, 2017, because they weren't stories of sort of like exit upsides for early employees or founders from like taking equity in companies. But now there are a ton of those stories right now and, and you see them nice. everywhere. So people are a lot more amenable to those kind of options. That's great to hear. I love, I love your words of encouragement, Femi. Can I ask, for those in our audience, I think there's many in our audience that are familiar with privatized healthcare and many that are also familiar with, with HMOs and what they are. I'm sure it's different in the Nigerian context where you've built. What are some of the, the key things that you are doing better or differently than Kaiser Permanente would? What are the ways in which you're leveraging technology or other, or other things that, that are different about working in Africa than in some of the other developed markets where we have privatized healthcare? Sure. I, I'll talk about the differences in, in two ways. On one side, I'll talk about the difference with regards to how what we're doing differs from you know, other developed markets. And I'll talk about how what we're doing differs from what other players in many emerging markets are doing. From on the developed market side, one major difference is just we usually need to take a different approach to customer to customer acquisition. So in most developed markets, you have like legal mandates that sort of mandate companies or corporate entities to provide privatized healthcare to 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 individuals. Even when you have countries like you know France or 
you know, Canada or the UK, where there's public, you know, publicly financed healthcare, most employers would still provide, you know, supplementary private health health insurance. And it's it's pretty widespread and it's very well known. But in most emerging markets, that's not that's not the case. And and so hmm. what we have had to do is sort of like figure out ways in which we can almost make an economic case to businesses and individuals on why this is sort of like the right the right um, product for them to take care of, of their healthcare. I think the other thing is is also which also kind of will will take me to the second piece. The other thing is in most developed markets, the healthcare systems are quite consistent. So what this means is that, say, from ex- for example, I I am a healthcare financing provider, right, and I have signed on a hospital. To a certain extent, I can have a certain degree of confidence that this hospital is going to meet this SLA in terms of like the care that they're going to provide to the patients and all that kind of stuff. That's not always the case in in when you're working with emerging markets. So sometimes you have to add the component of looking at quality. You know, am I making sure that the facility is providing the right care? Like, you know, are they doing it consistently? Are the drugs that I'm that they're providing original drugs and not fake drugs? That kind of stuff. In some cases, so we, we do have that bit of a burden, but that's also what makes it interesting, makes right? Sense. Because it also means that we have kind of like the leverage to make an even an outsized impact on people's day-to-day healthcare than say a player would in in like emerging markets where sometimes this is about cost control. Then on the local side, one major difference that we have is that we're an integrated provider. So what that means for us is with almost other providers, they're kind of like middlemen where they sit mm-hmm. between the person who's paying the the premiums and you know the hospitals so it's basically like hey you pay this person the premium in the hospital and they tell you where to go or you use that particular facility and then they reimburse that facility we take a lot more holistic view in fact we we typically don't even look at ourselves like a health insurance we look at ourselves as an integrated healthcare system so what that means is yeah when you pay us that single fee we take care of pretty much everything that has to do with your health and then when we're providing and what that means is that at the that's incredible back end where we're providing the care it's not just third parties in fact a lot of the care that we're providing is via entities that we own and operate ourselves so this would be the telemedicine platform the drug delivery platform our clinics and the thinking behind that is we taking that structure we are incentivized to make sure that you get treated properly when i say treated like health treated for your conditions properly the first time Right. Because mm-hmm. if if we're dealing with third parties, it doesn't matter how many times you come, they get paid every single time. But if it's an entity that we own, we're already financially or economically incentivized to make sure that the first time you come, we treat you properly the first time, which is the the proper thing to do. And in this case, we're yeah. aligning the proper thing to do, our values, with what is, you know, the economically advantageous things for us to do. So you don't always get that in business. So this is also what makes this very interesting, where the values are clearly aligned with with, with the economics. Uh, and, and that's those are sort of like things that, 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 make, that sort of separate us from, from other players in the space. 
That makes so much sense. There's something about ensuring the quality of care that you need to do, which requires you to get hands-on in terms of running your own clinics and you're running your own drug delivery. But it also makes your technology better, even for other players, because you really understand on the inside what it takes to use those systems. It's the thing a lot of a lot of organizations don't do because it's it's hard and many different yep. you need to understand many different kinds of businesses. But talking about Nigeria, talking about a lot of African markets, you have to take that step. Like it's harder, but the payout, both from an impact as well as a profitability perspective, is so much bigger because you're looking at that that whole picture of the intervention that you're trying to have. Exactly. Exactly. Femi, coming from for someone coming from the the aid or the donor sector who's trying to make lives better in Africa. Clearly you talk to a lot of investors and people with capital and such. What role do you think impact investors, donors, public sector funding, even government funding? Because some people would say, you know, providing healthcare should be a government service. How do you see those actors coming together to make successful an organization like yours or other Reliance Health in the world? It's a good question, and I have some controversial thoughts. Oh boy! <laughs> Which is, <Yeah. laughs> um, um, I think I think overall, every single player has their space, right, or has their place. Sorry, in the ecosystem. I think what's great about private entities like us is that we can sometimes be more innovative in the way we sort of approach yes. how we solve the problem. What's interesting with private, you know, let me say like more funders that, you know, more private funders, like, you know, they're happy to sort of support those interesting new models and interesting new um, ideas. Or maybe more correctly, the scaling of those interesting ideas, right? Um, And and you Mm -hmm. definitely need those private funders who can sort of back that and say, okay, look, I see an economic incentive for this scaling, this is great. I will I will back this. Um, it's also great that it has a massive impact on people's on people's lives. And I think even now the the direction that capital as a whole is moving in is becoming a lot more impact focused, right? Like you know, even with it is even with like investors that aren't overtly positioning themselves as impact investors, you know, that concept of the double bottom line is something that everybody is is looking for. You know, if you find it, it's great. If you don't, okay, but I'd rather like you were a business that's making a positive impact on on, on the world. And I think that's also coming from the, 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 the era that we live in now where to some extent businesses are being held to sort of like a higher standard when you think about the impacts on the environment, the impacts on people's lives, sometimes social political issues as well. And so that's sort of like rubbing off on on investors in a sense. But I think where the private investors are great is really being able to support the scale up of interesting business models that do have the potential to scale. Where I think the impact grant funding side is useful as, as an opportunity to kind of test different ideas, right? Because you still need you kind of still need that R&D aspect where you might not have that economic, in this case, it would sort of be an economic burden um, or economic incentive around it, but you can just like try different things. You know, hey, if we tried this, what would it do? So you think about like, the commercialization of science, for example. So typically what starts is like there are a couple of like boffins in the lab 
who are getting funding from uh, research grants or yeah so they're getting like research grants to try a few things and then maybe they discover this new like carbon material and then after a while that then gets commercialized and then it's funded by you know scale-up investors so I, I think it's it's very similar where everybody kind of has the their place in that ecosystem and that's kind of how I in in my head how I think it, it sort of plays out that makes a lot of sense to me. The concern that I have, though, is that sometimes you do have situations where the impact side or some people's definition of impact becomes yeah. a burden on what the business can do in being able to, 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 to execute its goal. Because let's be honest, like, you know, what do we mean by impact, right? It means different things to different people. Uh, and sometimes the definition of the impact funder could in some cases hinder the company or, or the player that, that's trying to do something because it provides an, a, a little bit of an additional burden. Okay, let's dive in to the rapid fire segment, which we use to wrap up our interviews. All right. First question for you, Femi, is an ask. Do you have any requests for donors or investors who fund social enterprises like yours? I'm sure you work with many of them. Are there any lessons learned or guidance you want to give them? I think it pretty much ties to what I what I said earlier, which is like listen to founders sometimes and be open minded on the definitions of impact and sort of like the end goals, because you might also find some really interesting ideas that you hadn't really thought about. Absolutely. Advice. If you could take a step back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? What advice would I give my younger self? I think the advice would be be more sort of like be more open to trusting people to do stuff while working with you. I think one thing that I it took me a while to learn was the power of delegation. And it was kind of like after I learned the power of delegation that I learned the importance of like a really strong team. If I could do anything different, it would be to start delegating a lot sooner because that sort of forces you. It's kind of a, it's a forcing function, to be honest. It forces you to build the right team because you can't delegate to the wrong person. You have to delegate to the right person, right? And that's what like forces you to hire really well. Yeah. So I think that's probably the advice that I would give. That makes sense. I don't know if I would take the advice, though. So that's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> like reaching our youth is a whole different. We could do another exactly. episode on that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, would you like to offer a shout out to someone who has inspired or guided your work? It's going to be my dad. My, so my father is a professor of gynecology, obstetrics gynecology. Well, to use the full term that he likes to use, obstetrics gynecology and perinatology. And he spent the last... I want to say almost 40 years focused on like maternal mortality in in like Nigeria and finding ways to sort of solve a lot of the problems around maternal mortality. He just did had his inaugural lecture, which is kind of like the lecture that you do to a sort of like a culmination of the, your academic career as a professor. But wow. I think what's inspiring about him is the fact that, you know, he's been working on this for a really long time and like his passion has not waned. He gets very passionate when he's talking about this really serious, this about, about this issue uh, and that. And, and it's interesting that even though he, he would have preferred back then anyway, was kind of like, Oh, you know, you could really make an impact if you stay as a doctor and everything. It's interesting that I've taken a very, very different path 
but it's, it's still sort of like yeah very different path but it's still sort of like um, impacting in 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 a different way but yeah he's he's definitely someone who's like inspired me the most in my work nice life hack what's one habit you've adopted in your life to keep yourself effective productive or motivated or all three oh yeah that's an easy question it's the concept of sort of like blocking meetings so one thing i very quickly found out is Sometimes we forget that like having a meeting, like a one hour meeting doesn't take one hour. A one hour meeting in my estimation probably takes closer to like 30 minutes in terms of like the mental bandwidth that that it takes up at the minimum, say like two hours. Because you kind of like 30 minutes before the meeting, you really can't focus on anything else because you have that meeting coming up. You're blocked for that one hour for that meeting period. And then for like 30 yeah. minutes after that, you can sometimes you kind of like ruminating on the things that you discussed at the meeting. So the, the hack that I sort of pulled together was selecting, say, like one, two days of the week. And those are all my meeting days. And I don't have any other meetings outside those two days unless it's like, you know, wow. the earth is, is going to crash. And so that leaves me like <laughs> three days of the week to like focus on just like stuff like thinking and stuff that's like deep, the concept of like deep work, like stuff that takes like yeah. real deep thinking. Uh, and when I didn't do calendar blocking, what was happening was I was taking meetings every day of the week, but I was just, there was a lot of activity, but I wasn't getting anything done. You know, there wasn't, <laughs> it didn't feel like there was any progress. Yeah. So yeah, calendar blocking, I would definitely recommend that. Yeah. That's a good one. Reading. What is one resource you use to stay up to date on what's going on in the industry? Ooh, I'm ashamed to say, like, I don't read as many books that I should. So You're my probably quite is, busy. <laughs> Maybe, it's still, I don't know. Not, it's, it's still not an excuse, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think my big reading is actually, like, to kind of stay up to date with what's happening in the industry, it's, it's, it's got to be TechCrunch. And, and I think I like TechCrunch because it's, like, the articles are, like, bite-sized and it's in a blog format, so you can kind of skip the things where the headlines don't interest you. But I remember I've gone like a bunch of like, it, it keeps you up to date on like what's interesting in technology, in healthcare technology, that kind of stuff. Granted, not a, I, I think now TechCrunch is doing a great job of being very broad geographically in terms of the areas that they cover. So, so I am beginning to find like content that's relevant to, to emerging markets, which is great. Great to hear. Last question for you, Femi. Just for fun, if you could recommend a book, a blog or a podcast that you've enjoyed in your personal time. If you have any. Oh, Outside Aid Involved. Yeah, that's a podcast. <laughs> of course. I mean, that's number one. <laughs> that's number one on the list, of course. Um, I'm, I'm definitely more of a podcast person because it fits better into my lifestyle. Commuting in Lagos takes a lot of time, so I spend that time listening to podcasts. One podcast that I would recommend, is, it's like one of my favorite, is Planet Money. Planet Money has two podcasts. It's They have the Indicator, which is a daily podcast, and then they have the weekly Planet Money podcast. So it's um, two for the price of one. But I think what's interesting about the Planet Money podcast is that it's supposed to be like an economics podcast, but it looks at a lot of like different things about life from like a very interesting angle. So the reporting is very interesting. It's very engaging. It's, it's just a, it's, it's a great podcast to listen to, if, if anyone can find the time. Great to hear. Thank you. What's the best place for listeners of our show to find out more about you or about Reliance Health? On our website, www.getreliancehealth.com. So www.getreliancehealth.com. 
Sounds good. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it was a lot of fun. Great work that you're doing on on, on the podcast, and uh, please continue uh, continue finding more interesting founders to share their stories because because we need a lot of these stories in in the ecosystem. It's very inspiring. I'll do my best. Every objection, every hesitation, those investors had against Fami during Demo Day, they've now overcome. They found product market fit, they've generated revenue, and they are now a licensed provider of medical services in all the geographies where they work. So take heart. Sometimes the people with the money get it wrong. Sometimes the people with the dreams persevere. And Reliance Health today is on fire, and they're hiring like mad. So if you're looking to work in Nigeria, Egypt, or remotely, check out their website at getreliancehealth.com. We'll see you in two weeks.